Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox. I'm the Compliance Evangelist, and I'd like to welcome you to This Week in FCPA, episode 150 for the week ending April 19th, 2019. First, a word from our sponsor, Affiliated Monitors. Founded in 2004, Affiliated Monitors provides professional, independent integrity monitoring and ethics and compliance assessments nationally and internationally and across almost all industries. With its knowledge of effective ethics and compliance programs and cultures, Affiliated Monitors respected for its work as the corporate monitor on matters ranging from multinational corporations to small and mid-sized companies and even individuals. Having served in over 750 monitorships, no one has more experience as an independent monitor than the team at Affiliated Monitors. For more information on how an independent monitor can help improve your company's ethics and compliance program, visit our sponsor, Affiliated Monitors, at www.affiliatedmonitors.com. In this episode, we look at corporations continuing to behave badly in lieu of Boeing's culture and the former CEO of BW, Martin Vinterkorn, being criminally charged. Mike Volkoff takes a deep dive into the standard chartered $1 billion fine for AML failures. How can you get compliance right when there are no regulations on it? Jay joins my bandwagon that effective compliance is a business enhancer. I'm interested to hear his views. We ask a GDPR, what happened to one-stop enforcement? We ask, how can the role of a monitor go murky? What is a facilitation payment and when is it a bribe? We explore that. We take a look at Trump's attempt to eviscerate agency rulemaking. And we conclude by talking about the five-part series I ran this week with Rod Grandin from Affiliated Monitor. This Week in FCPA is a part of the Compliance Podcast Network. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox, the Compliance Evangelist, back for another week of This Week in FCPA, episode 150 for the week ending April 19th, 2019, the Easter Passover edition. On this weekend, we have uh, unusually the dual celebration of Easter and Passover. Usually they're different weekends. However, that's not the big news. The big news is the Astros are on an 11 0 run. We've swept the Yankees, we've swept the Mariners, and hopefully today we'll sweep the A's and make it a 12 0 run. Uh, Jay's team has not swept anyone. Nevertheless, he has still kept his eye on some of the week's top compliance and ethics stories. So, Jay, uh, with that, do you want to uh, hop right into it? Uh, Yes, we should do that. Uh, First up, we've got a couple stories of uh, more companies behaving badly. Uh, First up, we've got something from Market Watch from Ann Skeet, and she's talking about here's what we can learn from Boeing's unhealthy corporate culture. And uh, this is a, a real intriguing piece. I really liked it. We linked to it in the show notes. And she talks about, um, I think everyone must have done a case study from Harvard about 30 years ago about Southwest Airlines and what they were selling. And here um, she talks about that the thing that Boeing has to be thinking about in terms of their corporate branding and their messaging is not that they do exciting things or you take trips, but what should be baked in there that's not even articulated is that you return home safely from your journey. So she's talking about that this would be a great time to start looking at 
why Boeing did what they did and not only trying to fix it from a technological point of view, but to also look about the culture because what kind of culture that promotes winning may also um, inadvertently uh, not promote safety. Uh, the second article that we look at is something that comes to us from the Wall Street Journal. Excuse me, it's from William Boston. And looking at uh, Volkswagen ex-CEO um, Martin Winterkorn, and he is now being um, brought up on individual charges. And these stem from um, an SEC investigation that Mr. Winterkorn, who was formerly VP of rather CEO of VW's Audi luxury car unit when he came in and he learned about the disabler switch on May 25th, 2014, he still allowed things to go along as usual. And the SEC feels like that he was deceiving investors. So uh, two articles about companies behaving badly. Anything to add to that, Tom? No, the, um, uh, Frankly, I'm not sure if I would appreciate a advertising campaign from an airline that says we get you home safely. I don't want to think about that when I'm flying, and I don't think most of the American flying public wants to think about that. We want to think about we don't want to think about that. We want that to be a given. And if uh, Boeing starts advertising the fact their planes get you home safely, I think that would imply to people that well, gosh. They must not have gotten people home safely at one point. So uh, I would be a little circumspect on that. And uh, frankly, I would not want to hear that advertisement as I was flying the friendly skies of United. All righty. So uh, next up, we've got something, uh, a three-parter from our good friend, Mike Volkov, who's uh, taking a real deep dive into Standard Charter and their $1 billion fine for failures in AML. What's Mike thinking about? So a great series by Mike. Kudos once again. Uh, the, um, this uh, uh, story has been told, I think, several times. Uh, and Mike, as always, has his own unique spin on it, which is uh, very focused for the compliance practitioner. So he's got three parts. Part one, he details the background facts. He lays out the fines and penalties and uh, the nefarious conduct. Uh, he continues discussion that conduct um, in uh, part two with a, a great understatement, which reads as follows, and I quote, Standard Charter Bank certainly has had its troubles. You know, a company is in trouble, however, when it breathes a sigh of relief after paying nearly $1.1 billion in fines and penalties and compares itself to BNP Paribas, the French global bank, which paid over $8 billion for pervasive U.S. sanctions. So, uh, great understatement from Mike, but it's really part three that I thought was the most interesting in Mike's own unique spin here because Jay, uh, the uh, Treasury's Department of Office of Foreign Asset Controls, OFAC, has promised to issue guidance on effective sanctions compliance programs. And although this is money laundering, it's something that every anti-corruption compliance practitioner needs to, to take a look at, not only for specific AML compliance programs within your organization, but also for insight into what constitutes the best practices in compliance. So there were five key elements that Mike details uh, in some some length, management, commitment, risk assessment, internal controls, testing and auditing and training. There was one new phrase that I really liked that 
uh, Standard Charter has to ensure that it has selected and, quote, calibrated, end quote, the solution in a manner that is appropriate to address SCB's risk profile and compliance needs, and that SCB routinely tests the solution to ensure effectiveness. I think uh, best practices is certainly evolving towards that standard, but I really like the concept of calibration to bring it uh, really into line with your risk that you have in your company. So, uh, Jay, uh, what do you do? How do you get compliance right if people like OFAC have never uh, issued regulations? This is a really interesting story that you found this week. Uh, it comes to us courtesy of Law360. And the author, hopefully I don't butcher her name, is Joe Ritchie Donahue. And this is a perfect complement to what uh, Mike and Tom were just speaking about. Um, she looks at several different recent um, rulings whether they're um, from OVAC or other regulators. But basically the question that Joe asks is one of the challenging aspects of complying with requirements that are not found in regulations is knowing where to find such requirements and keeping abreast of changes. Enforcement authorities, including in the recent cases that she talks about in this article, often advise companies to ensure that corporate policies and procedures are updated regularly to reflect changing requirements. But when there is no code of regulation or similar reference document that the U.S. government is responsible for updating and publishing to the public, the mandate to maintain appropriate internal controls is generally easier uh, said rather than done. So she said, now mining relevant U.S. government actions for relevant data points on compliance enables companies to determine with much greater clarity how they should allocate corporate resources. And now more than ever, an ounce of prevention is more valuable than a pound of cure, especially when companies can more precisely determine which, quote, ounce, unquote, of compliance is more worthwhile. So uh, she really poses a, a very interesting question about, you know, how do you find out where those rules are if we're having to only read about them in um, upcoming and rather um, successive enforcement announcements? Um, any thoughts there, Tom? No, I really uh, I like your lead in, Jay, when you said it uh, dovetailed nicely into Mike's Mike's piece, and I really thought it uh, gave some insight uh, into what compliance practitioners not only face, but uh, responses they can make in that situation. Perfect. So um, next up, uh, I've got a piece that I contributed this week to uh, Corporate Compliance Insights, and it's about how to reposition compliance as a revenue generator, making the case for compliance as a business an advantage. And, um, you know, a lot of times when Tom and I are talking about operationalizing your compliance, uh, a lot of times we will get pushback from people within a corporation and some of the reasons why they might not want to spend money or s spend time and effort on compliance, they may have pushback such as, if compliance is not one of my K KPIs, then what's in it for me? Uh, we've always done it this way, so ch why change now? Will my division ever realize any ROI from compliance? And we have a huge fire to put out now, so let's put it on the back burner. 
And uh, once you start digging in, if you are a good salesperson and a good compliance person, you are not really going to take those objections standing down, uh, sitting down rather. And you're going to look at different ways that you can basically leverage people that are already in your organization to uh, help make compliance a revenue generator. So bringing it all home, when you have these internal obstacles to face – We have to overcome the objections as we've demonstrated that operationalizing good ethics and compliance policy is not only a revenue extractor, but when used properly becomes a revenue generator. And so by doing this and challenging our ENC practitioners to operationalize ethics and compliance in daily processes, they will see that compliance can become a business advantage. Hallelujah, brother. Hallelujah. So uh, I know you and Jonathan uh, Armstrong had one of your uh, GDPR sessions this week. And is the article we're going to look on now, does that dovetail to anything that you and Jonathan spoke about? Uh, We actually did an entire podcast on this article, Jay. Uh, And I won't begin to uh, detail the depth that Jonathan went into uh, it's extraordinarily complicated. And frankly, I was more confused at the end than I was at the beginning. And I was pretty confused at the beginning. <laughs> the The bottom line here is that one of the advantages touted about GDPR is that there would be one regulator uh, for each company, basically, and that that regulator would do the investigation and assess and find a penalty. Not only a one pie on the fine and penalty concept that we have here in the United States, one regulator since they're 2080 uh, member EU nations. However, uh, and that regulator was supposed to be where the company was most strongly domiciled. And uh, as most of our listeners probably recall, uh, uh, Facebook, uh, Amazon, Google have all domiciled themselves in Ireland for tax purposes. Uh, However, uh, that's not the way it's worked out in practice. And the first uh, major landmark decision under GDPR, the French uh, statutory authority called CNIL, C-N-I-L, fined Google 50 million euros, uh, despite the fact that uh, the one-stop shop uh, concept would have suggested that uh, Google uh, be uh, investigated and fined in Ireland. Uh, However, uh, CNIL considered that Although Google did, does have its EU headquarters there, it doesn't, uh, Irish entity didn't have a sufficient decision-making power in relation to the purposes and means of the relevant cross-border test. So CNIL uh, went right ahead and uh, took the lead on the investigation and fined Ireland. So uh, this issue is probably going to have to go to the uh, European Court of Justice. Uh, obviously, uh, U.S. companies have forum shopped in Ireland for tax purposes. Now they're trying to form shop for uh, GDPR purposes. Uh, it's not clear what this means for Ireland, although they have some some uh, assets and resources in uh, investigation, not as much as England and not as much as uh, the French and Germans. So uh, whether or not one-stop uh, enforcement comes to fruition or not under GDPR is still an open question, Jay. So, Jay, uh, as Mr. Monitor, and the uh, I guess that makes you the sports spokesman for the entire Monitor community, let me ask you this question. How can the role of a Monitor go murky? 
Well, uh, I've got some answers for you. This article that came to us is uh, from Philip Bantz, and he's writing to us in law.com. And we're looking at um, a situation for Carnival Corp that was under an NDA. And uh, basically what seemed to happen is that they uh, were answering certain environmental issues. And there were some questions between whether or not the agreements were too narrowly drawn or too broadly drawn. And um, my colleague, uh, Eric Feldman from Affiliated Monitors, uh, was quoted in the article. And he basically said that uh, in speaking of general terms about larger compliance monitored issues, uh, Eric Feldman, Senior VP and Managing Director at Affiliated Monitors, uh, feels that the effectiveness of the monitor and and any of these cases goes back to the level of specificity in the agreement. And whether the agreement is a consent degree or a deferred prosecution agreement, it really needs to spell out the duties and responsibilities of the monitors. And this is something that we see quite often when we're beginning an engagement that a monitor, as we've talked about in the past, is usually in kind of a precarious situation because the uh, company that is being monitored doesn't really have the warm and fuzzies for somebody who they think of as a government spy who's in there looking at their business and trying to trip them up. And while at the same time, the government feels that the monitor might be taking it too easy upon the company and really not being the uh, sharp teeth for the government. So you have to really kind of walk that uh, very slippery slope and develop trust on both sides. And it seems that what happened here in this situation with Carnival is that uh, really the um, specifics of this EPA um, agreement were not fully defined. Also in the article, um, they speak with Sarah Foley, who formerly worked for the Hershey Company and is now at Oric. And she again talked about that when you need to have a successful monitorship, it really takes a lot of thoughtful planning at the beginning. And your monitor is really only going to be as good as the uh, directions in that agreement are uh, drawn up. So uh, it wouldn't be this week in the FCPA if we did not have something from the FCPA blog. And our old friend Dick Casson has visited us with uh, some information on Uber. What did Dick find out? So Dick used the Uber disclosure that it's under an FCPA investigation for, quote, small payments to police in Indonesia, end quote, uh, to really explore facilitation payments. And then he also took a look at um, uh, charitable donations, because that's apparently also a part of the uh, Uber issue. Um, Obviously, facilitation payments are exempted out of the FCPA. There's no dollar limit of what a facilitation might be. There's five specific uh, uh, uses for a facilitation payment written into the FCPA. And uh, grease payments are not not prosecuted. However, uh, it doesn't take much for a grease payment to become a bribe. And if uh, there were payments to police to have them look the other way, when Uber was violating uh, laws, uh, I think that, Jay, is, is probably not the definition of a facilitation payment because it's actually a facilitation payment is to get to some, get 
a government official to do something they were going to do already, such as give you a license or a permit or let you in through passport control quicker than they would have otherwise. So um, that's a, it was an interesting discussion. And it's always relevant to consider facilitation payments. Also, uh, what is a small amount at Uber might not be a small amount uh, to the Rosen or Fox household. So um, ours might be much smaller. So if they were paying thousands of dollars, we recently had a uh, FCPA enforcement action involving Fresenius where we had uh, gifts at uh, just over $1,000 violating the FCPA. Then there was uh, the charitable donations where uh, a large donation was made by Uber um, in Malaysia and uh, Uber received um, tens of thousands of dollars it made to uh, Malaysian Global Innovation and Creative Creativity Center, and within a year, the Malaysian government pension sponsor had invested $30 million in Uber, and Malaysia's government had passed legislation favorable to Uber. Uh, The Malaysian uh, government, uh, Global Innovation and Creativity Center, denied any quid pro quo, but you have to ask the question because the timing sure looks uh, interesting. And once again, uh, there's no fine line uh, or rather fine definition on charitable donations under the FCPA. Uh, We've had several uh, enforcement actions around this. Once again, Cognizant Technologies uh, and uh, MTS uh, this year had uh, components with charitable donation violations. So a great piece from Dick reminding us to take a look at this. And it really turns on the corrupt nature, Jay, of the... uh, of the donation. Uh, Jay, we uh, uh, had a couple of articles recently about the Trump administration attempting to eviscerate uh, agency rulemaking. Uh, Joe Mont took a look at it in Compliance Week, and Matt Kelly uh, took a look at it in Radical Compliance, and I probably should have added to the show notes, Matt and I did a podcast on it this week. What were your uh, your uh, reflections on reading these articles? Well, I, I don't think it's as confusing as uh, GDPR and uh, CNL in Ireland, but it's getting close. So basically the uh, OMB, the Office of Management and Budget, published a memo directed at all federal agencies telling them that effective May 11th, they must submit all proposed rules and regulatory guidance to the Office of Information and Regulatory Affairs, and the four-letter alphabet there is O-I-R-A, and bureaucrats there will then rule on whether a proposed rule is, quote, major, unquote, or, quote, minor, unquote, according to the parameters of the Congressional Review Act a favorite tool of Republicans used for squashing Democratic-led legislation and regulation. Now, where Joe is very much all business on this, Matt really gets in uh, a little bit to the weeds, and that's why he's the coolest guy in compliance. And he talks about, you know, this just could be another way for the White House trying to gain more executive power and take it away from the congressional power to uh, not only uh, spend money, but to also pass laws. So um, Matt pulled out a little bit history, and I guess this Congressional Review Act itself was a brainchild of Newt Gingrich, and the latest OMB policy is just another incarnation of the same sentiments, conservatives looking to score cheap points by taking up some administrative deep state looking to sell out the company, 
when plain fact is that large, complex, service-oriented economies requires regulations. So Matt says, let's get this right the first time rather than second-guess ourselves into paralysis and impotence, because that's the direction the White House plan takes us, and there are a dozen different ways to do it better. So uh, what did, you, did you basically say that on the podcast as well? So we took, uh, uh, first of all, uh, uh, wearing my lawyer Tom hat, I don't think this passes the administrative law uh, test or the administrative uh, law act. So I don't think it's legal. Uh, I don't think the White House can strip Congress of its uh, mandatory duties. So that's kind of point one. But uh, the, the point Matt and I explored is you have a, a administration dedicated to reducing regulation. Well, reducing regulation has to go through this process too, Jay. And if the White House is going to bottle up uh, rules and regs, uh, they're probably going to bottle up both those that are additional and those that are changing or reducing regulation. So uh, once again, I think the Trump administration is shooting itself in the foot. And for every uh, half step it thinks it's taking forward, it takes several steps back, which appears to me this this is going forward. So we've got another interesting article from CCI Corporate Compliance Insights. This comes to us from Steve Durbin, and he talks about what businesses need to know now to prepare for oncoming cyber attacks. Well, Steve thinks that uh, this is something businesses really need to focus on, that this could be the top threat uh, to corporations uh, going forward. And he lists the top three threats to uh, information security. Uh, The first is digital connectivity exposes hidden dangers, and he lists Uh, 5G uh, and manipulated machine learning and uh, malware as critical elements there. Number two is the digital Cold War. Uh, Certainly, it's well known that uh, North Korea, Russia, China, probably other countries are attacking the United States, but they're not just attacking our government. They're attacking companies. And so as the battle for technological and economic supremacy intensifies, companies are going to get hit. They're... uh, Servers are going to be sabotaged. Cloud services are going to be sabotaged. Uh, and he also brings up the uh, drone attack, certainly the uh, two in London, uh, or rather London Gatwick around Christmas. Uh, and finally is uh, digital competitors are ripping up the rule books. So there's vigilantes weaponizing vulnerable disclosures. Tech companies are breaking up uh, business models through um, their uh, sweep as well. And Uh, Digital transformations destroy trust between organizations. So he lays out some themes uh, and says that you really need to begin to prepare now. So uh, a very interesting article. So um, this week, Tom had the pleasure of visiting with my AMI colleague, Rod Grandin, who's based in our D.C. office, is managing director and leads our government contracting group. And uh, they talked about the concept of a responsible contractor. How did that go, Tom? So it was a great series, Jay. Uh, You know, Rod is really the man when it comes to government contracting. He was a longtime uh, JAG officer, JAG lawyer. Uh, Then he went to the IG's office uh, with the Department of Air Force, uh, as he said, before he took off the uniform and moved into private practice. He, He knows federal contracting inside and out. 
So we talked about really what is a responsible contractor? What does the government expect? He focused, uh, we focused one episode on small businesses and what small businesses can do to um, have a robust compliance program, even in the face of much less revenue than larger defense contractors. I get to, I was able to pose a question to him. I've wanted to ask him for some time, which is why are we even talking about this uh nearly 20 years after Sarbanes-Oxley and, and quite a bit of time uh, as well uh, from the defense side of things. And finally, how do you keep it fresh? Uh, it's a great series. Uh, like I said, Rod is really the guy, uh, the man about all of this. And uh, uh, we've uh, listed all of the notes. I'm going to re- re-release all of the podcasts in one newsletter uh, this weekend. So if you didn't get a chance to uh, listen to it, Take a binge listen and go through it. They're a great series of podcasts, Jay. So uh, besides the Rockets being up 2-0 and the um, Astros going on this winning streak, uh, anything else that's uh, keeping you occupied from a sports perspective? Well, not really from a sports perspective, Jay, but I know uh, uh, you're going to be spending some time with your family this weekend. I'm going to be spending some time with my family. So I'm looking forward to that. We have a lovely spring day in Houston. So uh, I'm hopefully going to uh, enjoy a, a couple of days off and uh, try to eat way too much uh, and see where that takes me. And uh, there are going to be some great sporting uh, events on television this weekend. And I'm going to bunker down and check them out. How about you? Uh, I think we will do the same here. Uh I was I'm back in the Boston area and I thought the Sox were looking good last night in the sixth inning being up uh, three to one against the dreaded Yankees. But, uh, you know, nobody should count out a Gardner and uh, somebody on their Sox pitching staff uh, serving up a grand slam. So uh, I I think uh, luckily my brother in law is a Celtics fan. So uh, we're going to go that way for the weekend. But uh, I guess uh, I'd like to wrap it up for the week of April 19th. This has been This Week in FCPA, episode 150, the Eastern Passover edition. On behalf of Tom Fox, the compliance evangelist, and myself, Jay Rose, and Mr. Monitor, we'd like to thank you for joining us and have a wonderful holiday weekend. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox again. I hope you've enjoyed episode 150 of This Week in FCPA. I hope you have a great Easter or Passover or any other holiday you may be celebrating over the next few days and that you have great weather and are safe and sound with your family. If you have any questions on this episode, you can email Jay at jrosen at affiliatedmonitors.com. You can email me at tfox at tfoxlaw.com. I hope you'll join Jay and I again next week where we take a look at some of next week's top stories in ethics and compliance. This Week in FCPA is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.